The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. This weekly show will be a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the reality and the growth of the modernist heresy, which surrounds and threatens to engulf faithful Catholics. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration, with articles, books, and videos available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of the radio network are underwritten by True Restoration, our particular show is truly listener-supported. We have annual radio subscriptions for the subscriber of every level, available by clicking the Donate button at truerestoration.org. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on blogtalkradio.com slash restorationradio and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, LinkedIn, and Pinterest by following us using the social buttons on truerestoration.org. Tonight, we welcome back to From the Pulpit Father Kevin Valancourt, who will be delivering two sermons this evening which are integral to October, the month of the Holy Rosary, and also the recent celebration of the 96th anniversary of the Miracle of the Sun promised by Our Lady of Fatima on October the 13th, 1917. In the first part of tonight's show, Father will discuss how to pray the rosary well. Most Catholics seem to have at a minimum some kind of difficulty which affects their daily recitation of the rosary. Father will give us plenty of food for thought and a plan moving forward for not only praying the rosary, but praying it well. In the second half of our show, Father will provide an insightful understanding of our Blessed Mother's role in nurturing, developing, and sustaining the interior life, a most foundational aspect of our faith which can many times be lost in the deluge of this tidal wave of modernism affecting all of us, and that is the interior life. We hope these two sermons add spiritual benefit to this month of the Holy Rosary for all of our listeners. And now, Father Valancourt. My intent behind all of this is to help us in the renewing of the spirit of praying the Rosary better. Given the understanding of how important the Rosary is, the Rosary has been given to us in a special way from Almighty God through His Blessed Mother. Seeing how important the Rosary is, this is why I'd like to reflect upon it in a twofold manner, both for that, so that we can learn to be able to pray the Rosary better and reflecting upon the mysteries as we know that we should, but also to take the time as we should in, in meditating upon the sufferings of Jesus Christ and also that of our Blessed Mother. Because as the saints so often tell us, that it's by reflecting on this, the passion of Jesus and the sorrows of Mary that we can have great progress in our spiritual life and also come to that amendment of life, that point of change, when we realize that it's because of his sorrows, he, or excuse me, our sins, he has suffered the sorrows that he has, recognizing that as we should, then more and more hopefully it will bring us to that true spirit of amendment, the change that's there. But let me go back to this point about the rosary, the importance of it, 
I'd just like to make this opening conference in this particular way on the mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary in a general understanding. First of all, the importance of the rosary to remind ourselves of that so we can refocus on that and pray our rosary better day by day during the Lenten season, but also that we can come to the thoughts that we need as we approach the reflection upon the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, how we can better do that, again, so we can get the fruit from praying those mysteries of the rosary as we do. Again, as I said before, the rosary is a gift given to us by Almighty God through the hands of our Blessed Mother. There existed early on, maybe in the 700s, 800s, it goes back a far part in tradition, um, where people would recite the Hail Mary, the Psalter, if they would call it, the lay people's Psalter, actually became known as Mary's Psalter. They would pray that in numerous Hail Marys in imitation of the monks chanting the psalms that they would do. The people couldn't join in necessarily with that, but they could pray the Hail Marys with 150 psalms and yet 150 Hail Marys. So he had the basis, the beginning of the rosary. It was in the time of St. Dominic, though, that the rosary was going to take its forefront as we know it today and the importance that it is for us. To set the stage, St. Dominic had been preaching, trying greatly in order to overcome the heretics, the Albigensians. He had tried greatly by his preaching and been successful in many other areas with other heretics and those in error and weak in the faith. His success he had in his preaching in the uh, prayers that he prayed, the sacrifices he made. But the grace of God was working. You could see the changes that were coming in people, but not with this group of Albigensians. They were a particular tougher people to have to work upon. Um, some kings tried to actually wage war against them to, uh, to purge out that heresy from the land, and it didn't work. They actually became stronger at that point. And so St. Dominic often prayed for help especially in a, in a great way to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is, was known even at that time as the vanquisher of all heresies for the aid that was needed to conquer this particular evil of the Albigensian heresy. It was at that particular time, after his prayers and sacrifices, that the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to St. Dominic. She asked him, she said, Dear Dominic, do you know the weapon the Blessed Trinity wants to be used to reform the world? And he replied, Show me, dear lady, show me this weapon and I will use it according to God's good pleasure. He wishes it to be done. And she says, I want you to know that in this kind of warfare, the battering ram has always been the angelic psalter, which is the foundation stone of the New Testament. Therefore, I want, if you wish to reach these hardened souls and win them over to God, preach my psalter. And he went about and did that. And it's almost miraculous if you read the stories of what took place. St. Louis Marie de Montfort has it in Secret of the Rosary, other places in the Annals of the Life of St. Dominic that were written. You see the success, almost the immediate turnaround that took place once he started to preach the Rosary. That the hardened sinners actually started to, the grace was coming to God's, and that hardness of heart they had started to leave. More and more these people came to the faith or else left from the area altogether if they didn't wish to come, wish to, come to the service of God. It would just show that this was going to be a weapon, a powerful weapon for hardened sinners. But not only that, the rosary is also given to us too to help us, to assist us, to strengthen us, particularly in dangerous times. I think it's this reason why the, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared at least twice if not more, with other times telling us about the importance of the rosary, but at least at Fatima and at Lourdes. 
And there she told us about praying the rosary. In fact, at Vatima, it was pray the rosary daily. She said her one her son wishes to establish devotion to her Immaculate Heart, and through that, the praying of the rosary. If the rosary could convert hardened sinners, praying the rosary well could do a lot to changing the hearts of those that pray it, if they pray it well. So this is what it seems to be coming down to our age, the importance of the praying of the rosary. St. Louis Marie de Montfort, again, in that book, Secret of the Rosary, he says, pray the rosary daily. And he recommends it um, in honoring three crowns that Jesus and Mary had. One of the crowns that Jesus had was a joyful crown, meaning the grace that he had received um, and wins for people. The sorrowful crown for the thorns that he had, uh, had representing his passion. And the glorious crown, which represents the glory that he has in heaven, seated next to his almighty father. And for the Blessed Virgin Mary, her crown was the threefold crown of the Blessed Trinity, as daughter of the Father, mother of the Son, and spouse of the Holy Ghost. He says, too, if we do this, if we pray the rosary to honor Jesus and Mary in this way, the joyful mysteries, so we understand the grace that has been given to us by Jesus coming in the Incarnation, the sorrowful mysteries, so that we can reflect upon his passion and suffering, and understand how much he suffered for love of us, and the glorious mysteries, where he is with that crown of glory in heaven, but also to show that we too can gain heaven and a glorious crown. See, this is what the rosary will teach us. This is the grace that will come to us. It will build us up in our hearts. This is what St. Louis Mary de Montfort is telling us. He says, if we do this, we will receive the crowns of merit during our lifetime, which is the joy that comes from the joyful mystery, will receive peace when we die by praying well the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary and by praying well the glorious mysteries of the rosary, he says we will have glory in heaven. These are the promises that are set forth to all those who pray the rosary and pray the rosary well. And the important part then, as I come back to this Lenten theme, yes, it's on the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, but today I started with this general idea of recapturing in our hearts and souls the belief that the rosary is important to pray and important to pray well. If we're going to pray the rosary, this is one of the unique prayers that we have in the church. It is both vocal prayer, where we recite the Our Father and Hail Marys together, and it's also mental prayer. The rosary has been given to us specifically so that we can meditate upon the mysteries that are there. If we don't meditate upon the mysteries, if our mind floats off and wanders wherever it goes to, we may be faithful in saying the words, but we're only halfway there in praying the rosary. And being only halfway there, what kind of graces do you think we will receive? I've outlined already what Our Lady told St. Dominic, what she said to us at Lourdes and Fatima, what St. Um, Louis de Montfort also said regarding the importance and what we can gain from praying the rosary and praying it well. To pray it well means to pray it in that proper vocal sense together, but also it means to pray it with meditation on the mysteries of the rosary, to think about it, to reflect upon it. You know, Our Lady is not asking us here to reflect upon high theological points and mysteries. If we are faithful in reading anything of spiritual reading on the life of Jesus and Mary, if we are faithful in our own meditations throughout the day, 
if we've read even from the scriptures of what takes place in our Lord's life and what the scriptures reveal to us of the life of our Blessed Mother, we have, even from that area, it's not high theology, but we have, even in those areas right there, sufficient food for thought, continuous thought, in meditating upon these mysteries that are presented to us. We have sufficient ideas here that as we pray, we meditate. As we pray, we are lifting up our hearts, minds, and souls to God in these thoughts, the thoughts that are set before us. In fact, do you realize that if you want to gain the graces that come for First Saturday, our Lord Lady said, you know, the promise that comes from five, the five, observing the five First Saturdays, that one of the requirements is to keep company with her. These are her words to keep company with her in meditating for at least 15 minutes on the mysteries of the rosary, which can be accomplished by praying the rosary if we meditate. But if we just mumble words and don't meditate, and if we miss out on the rosary that way and we think we've fulfilled our first Saturday obligation and we haven't meditated on the mysteries of the rosary as Our Lady asked for 15 minutes, we have not made the first Saturday obligation. Mary has given us, this is what you need to do. The great gift is going to come to you from the promise of the five first Saturdays if you do these things. But so often, what is not under, forgotten is where she says, I want you to keep me company. That's her words. Keep me company by meditating on the mysteries of the rosary for 15 minutes. It should not be that hard. But unfortunately it is because we live in a world that is so filled with distractions, so much noise about us, that sometimes it seems that people are uncomfortable unless they have noise going on around them. They haven't learned the benefit of quiet and quiet prayer. And that's what meditation really is all about. So this is the idea here set before us about the importance of praying the rosary praying it well, which means the proper way of saying it in vocal prayer, in a loving spirit, in a proper voice, and then also meditating upon those mysteries. That's what brings us the whole thought. This is where the power of the rosary is. If we engage ourselves in praying the rosary in this way, we will experience its aid right away, just like St. Dominic did. But perhaps we're not experiencing the power of the rosary in our own lives simply because, well, when it comes down to, we're not praying our rosary well. Let's move on then to the chosen theme that we have for this Lenten season, the chosen theme on the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. Again, the idea to help to renew, to be able to amend any way we have not prayed our rosary well my first thoughts there were to help to at least inspire that particular part in our hearts and souls that we can go forth from here today and say, I'm determined during Lent I will pray my rosary better because that's such a great source of grace for me. But also I'm going to make sure that I reflect upon the mysteries well. And so what I want to do here is where there have been any weaknesses in our lives, any difficulties and meditate upon them sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, what I want to help to do during this Lenten season is mystery by mystery review things, things we're able to think upon. 
my sermons are going to be probably 20 minutes to 30 minutes in length. A deck of the rosary, what, goes about five minutes? <laughs> there should be ample things to reflect upon during the Sorrowful Mysteries of the Rosary after we complete all of these reflections. There should be. None of us should be able to say, I don't know what to think about during the rosary. We do know. The joyful, sorrowful, and glorious mysteries of the rosary are the simple mysteries of our faith to think about. And being that they are mysteries, there is a depth to them that it's going to take a long time, perhaps all eternity, to be able to understand completely. This is especially true. I mean, I don't want to single out just the sorrowful mysteries as more important than the others, but this is what we're reflecting upon after all it's Lent. And our thoughts during the Lenten season, at least the first four weeks of the Lenten season, they are here to help us to understand the amendment of life and to focus upon Jesus crucified and all the sufferings that he has gone through for us, all these sufferings that are there to help for us to win the graces that you and I need so we can make that amendment of life and make it stick. You know, really make it this Lent that we will make changes in our lives and not just let it slip by and say, oh, there goes another Lent. A week later and say, boy, I forgot all my resolutions. Things are so hard now. It was so much easier during Lent. So much easier during Lent because we applied ourselves. And that's what we have to keep doing. And that's what we learn. We build up good habits during this season to make it possible. In this reflection of the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, I'd like to start at least with what St. Alphonsus teaches regarding the, the sorrows of Jesus and some of the thoughts that should fill our hearts as we think about his sufferings, his passion, all the things that he had gone through for us. St. Alphonsus teaches, he says, that the death of Jesus is for me my hope for pardon. Had it not been that Jesus died and shed his blood for me, St. Alphonsus said, I would be left in hopeless despair, absolutely hopeless despair, had that not been the case, had that not been true. I'd be in hopeless despair because it would seem I'm left to myself to try to make amends for all my sins, much less also to help make reparation for the sins of the sinful world. But Jesus came to do this. By his own death, St. Alphonsus says, he paid that penalty that was due to us. He took it upon himself and took it, and all the debt that we had built up all of our faults and failings. Forget about the sinful world, the whole age of mankind, from the creation until the end of time. All of those things Jesus will suffer, and those will be part of our reflections during the agony in the garden reflections next week. But just in general, looking at this, despite all the sins of mankind, what about mine? What about my sins and your sins? Taken individually now, taken individually to understand just how serious they are, that one mortal sin that can damn us to hell, one mortal sin is worse than just saying, I slap God in the face. One mortal sin is like being the one who is responsible for putting a nail in one of Jesus' hands or taking the crown of thorns and shoving it down on his head. One mortal sin makes us responsible for the shedding of all his blood. Not just one little drop, all of it. Because he would do that. He so loved souls individually. 
And we need to be convinced of that fact. These are not just pious words. Maybe we hear these from Protestants. This is what Protestants saying. Maybe Catholics aren't supposed to think about these things. You're absolutely wrong. I'm sorry that the non-Catholics have stolen from us this important part of devotion and made it such an important quest of theirs to understand the sufferings of Jesus and to appreciate that. Because Catholics just don't seem to do that. Catholics seem to run away. We seem to be so commonplace seeing the crucifix up there that when we come into the church, we say, oh, crucifix, seen it before. Crucifix is in our home, ah, seen it before. We're not moved by the sight of the crucifix at the symbol of love there that Jesus has shown to us in his sufferings and death. Sometimes it takes for people those really graphic holy cards where Jesus is completely whipped and scourged and the blood is coming out. That starts to move them. But after a period of time, even that doesn't do it. There's not enough love there. Love for Jesus and all that he has suffered. Love for Jesus and all that he has done. Love for Jesus and the humiliation he has shown that as a God, he would come down and take on the offenses of sinful creatures, his own creatures, his ungrateful creatures. He would come and take on those offenses as if they were his own and then die because that is what his heavenly father expected of him to do. It would take a God doing such things in order for the sins of man to be redeemed, in order for the justice that the Almighty Heavenly Father was looking for, that he expected, could not be found in any way. And that's why, again, why St. Alphonsus teaches, the death of Jesus is my hope for pardon. I realize I have offended, but I also know he has forgiven. And as long as I love him and make the amendment and change in my life, then despite the fact that he knows all of my sins and has died for them, he will show me mercy. Heaven will open to me. The blood which he has shed will not plead back to heaven like happened with Abel. Remember in the book of Genesis, after Cain had slain his brother Abel? And God was speaking to Cain and saying, where is your brother Abel? His blood cries out from the earth, in vengeance for vengeance back upon Cain for the, the committing that, that act of murder but imagine what cries to heaven for vengeance for the sins of mankind from the beginning of time until the end of time or most importantly the sins that you and I have committed especially those sins that we've committed when we know better we have learned what we should do and we don't care. We know what it is that we should do. We made maybe a confession, a revolving door. We are not making the progress that we should. Now let's start talking about an even greater depth of guilt that comes at that point. It's one thing to be guilty when I wasn't <coughs> as strong, when there might have been difficulties in my life. It's one thing to be guilty at that point, but the guilty just compounds the guilt becomes worse. The justice that God demands of you and I becomes that much more severe simply because you and I know better. And we show the real malice that's in our hearts because we say we know better. We say we love Him. We put God on our tongues at Holy Communion. We put all of these things here 
in our life and then willfully offend him, especially by mortal sin. And what afterwards would he say? Oops, Jesus, I'm sorry. I promise not to do it again. And not too long later, we repeat the sin. Now, the blood of Jesus cries out for vengeance. But the vengeance it cries out for is mercy and forgiveness upon all those who make changes. We'll also spend time during our reflections here thinking of the sorrows of Mary because we need to do that as well. Because the, the reflecting on the sufferings and sorrows of Mary are also our hope. Because she merited grace. She did not need to suffer for herself. She merited graces for us to make the changes, to amend, to renew within ourselves the spirit of the service of love of God, to overcome bad habits and faults and failings, to truly do that. The grace is there to do it. We just don't ask for it. And that's why we fail. One thing I'd like to propose here right now is, since we're, in, we're, we're not at the, the five sorrowful mysteries yet, like I said, next week we will start the reflection on the first sorrowful mystery of the rosary. But everything we say about the rosary, its importance, that it's a prayer that is both vocal and mental, that the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary are calculated to inspire in us sorrow for sin, the desire to love Jesus, to seek his mercy, and to build up that love for Jesus so that we will not offend him simply because we love him. If the threat of hell doesn't change our lives, Dear God, I hope if we can say we love him, that we won't offend him because we understand at what price that love came to us. But as I said about the rosary, you know, it's a vocal prayer. It's a mental prayer. When do you start your reflections, let's say, for the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary? Kneeling down like we did before Mass tonight. We have all the introductory prayers, our profession of faith, the three Hail Marys, and so forth. And then finally announce the mysteries for the five, the five sorrowful mysteries, the rosary. When do you begin your reflections? When do you begin thinking about, I'm going to be praying the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary? Or, when do I begin thinking of those sacred events that surround the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary? Do I wait until the announcement of the first sorrowful mystery, the agony in the garden? Maybe it's not absolutely wrong to do that, but you're shortchanging yourself from so many graces that can come. The prayer of the rosary is vocal and mental. It needs to start right away. From the moment we make the sign of the cross, we should start thinking, I am about to pray the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. I am going to place myself in the presence of God as I am here before him in the tabernacle and as he is before me always in spirit. I place myself in his presence and I want to especially be like a companion, if you will, to the sufferings of Jesus and Mary. See what they have gained. I don't want to waste even the least little second, if you will, of time, opportunity for grace that can come to me as I make the sign of the cross and start the mysteries of the rosary. There's a number of considerations that you and I can have as we begin the rosary, those opening prayers, the introductory part. How about placing ourselves in that council where the high priests are already starting to talk about, we need to put this man to death. 
If we don't do that, the whole nation will go after him. Somehow, some way, we must put him to death. If you even think, if you even meditate upon it, you can look around and see the anger in these faces, the plotting and planning that is there, how the devil has inspired them in a great way to want to bring to death Jesus because that's the only solution. The pride, the hypocrisy of these Pharisees, of these chief priests, has led them to this point to plot for death. Not just imprisonment, not in banishment, death. What can bring men to that degree? Such a hatred in their hearts for Jesus Christ. But they were wondering how they could accomplish it. Huh. Comes one man, Judas. Judas who had been disillusioned. Things were not going as they used to be. Not as many people were following anymore. It seems that Jesus didn't have the desire as much to go out and preach all over as he had done before. He was becoming more withdrawn. The other apostles were noticing this, but Judas, the, Judas, the educated one, he really noticed it. He needed to do something. If it was time for Jesus to leave, then he would help. He would assist with that. But he wanted to make sure he got something for it because, after all, he's going to lose his job. And he needed to have some kind of safety and security. So he comes before those same high priests that are plotting and planning. How can we put this man to death? A gift is given to them. A bad gift, an evil gift, yet nevertheless a gift. One they would never have expected. Judas walks in and says, You know me. You have seen me. I am one of his. I propose to give to you Jesus whom you seek. We will plot that. We will plan that. But I need some compensation for that. So they all huddled together and said, We'll give you 30 pieces of silver. The agreement was made. The plan was set forward. Judas went back to Bethania where the others were with Jesus as if nothing had happened. Everything's fine. The Pharisees and the chief priests of the temple, they got their wish. It was all going to come together now. And all in these particular events. But before that would ever happen would come the Last Supper the washing of the feet by Jesus of the other apostles, the act of humility, the commandment of charity being given to us, that you must love one another as I have loved you. The warning that Jesus gives to Judas, the institution of the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, the institution of the Holy Eucharist, the institution of the sacred priesthood, the discourse that Jesus gives the Last Supper that John, St. John records in his Gospel quite well that Jesus is the source of life. He will sacrifice his life for us. And the reward that will be given to his own as a result of that is great. And then we are allowed, St. John records it for us, we are allowed to, to witness and take part and eavesdrop, if you will, into the prayer of Jesus Christ to his heavenly Father for himself, for his apostles, for the church, and the love that he expresses in his heart for his own. You don't have anything to think about in those few opening prayers before the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary are announced? Come on. I've just given a short overview of what is there. If you really loved Jesus Christ, as the imitation of Christ tells us, you would study his life. You would reflect upon it so you could imitate it. 
you would really make these thoughts your own constantly so that right away from the beginning of the rosary we are already thinking of these great events, the betrayal, the love of Jesus at the Last Supper, all that he has done for us, all of these things to prepare our hearts, getting ready now for our reflection upon his sorrowful passion where our great source of grace will lie. I set this before you here at the beginning of Lent as one method by which you can amend in praying your daily rosary. Don't let those few opening prayers just breeze right by with mind all off in a distraction. Because I'll tell you, if that's how you begin your rosary, that's how you're going to continue to pray it and end it in that way. We must be determined. We will make it a prayer that is both vocal and mental from start to finish. We must be determined we will do that if we are going to gain all the graces that God sets before us through the rosary. So what I propose to you tonight, as you leave from here in the course of the next week and all up until next Wednesday, imagine yourselves at just these events, the ones that I've described. Imagine yourselves at these. Think of these during the coming week. These will help to prepare for the review of the first sorrowful mystery next week. I'm not going to tell you next week I'm going to be preaching something brand new, something the world has never heard before, sorrowful mysteries. It's not the case. My words will only serve as a reminder of all the things that we've already known and maybe casually forgotten. But again, what I want to do during Lent is to help to mend, make the change in the way we pray the rosary in the reflection that we bring to it. If we want to change, if we want the power the rosary is promised to do, we must give the rosary every effort we can in vocal and mental prayer. Every effort we can. Again, let's make that a point, an effort here that we do. And we'll see just how much more beneficial the recitation of the rosary will be, not only for Lent, but the rest of our lives. We hope you are enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Be sure to visit TrueRestorationMedia.com to view our available streaming videos for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now we present the continuation of tonight's program. reflection um, preached and given to us on this particular day, on this feast day, to honor this special prerogative of Mary, probably, or arguably by some, the greatest of her prerogatives. I say arguably as greatest, or we're not, you know, it's great to have some favors from God given in any particular way, but to have been so favored by God that from the very first moment of her 
conception, the first, the, the first moment that the, 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 the spark of life, if you will, would be there. God, by his almighty power, by his special privilege, St. Pope Pius IX says, when he defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, he says, by his special power, he prevented the stain of original sin from coming upon Mary, and thus she was conceived, and never at any time under the dominion of Satan. Never at any time was she a slave to sin. Never at any time could the devil claim her as part of him. This was important largely because it was in that if Christ is going to be conceived of or taking flesh from a human being, for the Almighty God, the All-Pure, the All-Holy God, it makes great sense to understand that God would work this great miracle in her favor so that she would not be sin, sinful and not in any way have the stain of sin upon her. So Jesus Christ in his humanity cannot have any stain of sin there. The devil could at no time point to him and say, you may be God, but you had sin on your soul, or you came at least from a sinful person. You may not have sinned yourself, but you came from a sinful person who was once one of mine. The devil could not brag that way. The devil remembered the promise that God had announced as Adam and Eve were sent from the Garden of Paradise. That as they were leaving, God turned to the devil in the form of that snake, and he said, There will come a woman, and she shall crush her head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. And so for 4,000 years there, the devil was in wait for that woman to come. And this day we celebrate when that woman has come. Again, it can come to this particular point of its looking forward to the time when redemption could be beginning with this that God's best and greatest of creatures has now come upon our land. You know, from what we read in the epistle for today from the Book of Wisdom, it gives us the thoughts of how God, I'm going to use some human, human language here for God, and it's, and, you know, that's the only way I can express it to get the idea of God's anticipation for this. God from all eternity, you know, time is a part with God, just a little blip on the screen, so to speak, in God's whole work. God works the whole thing in eternity. But from eternity and of old, before the earth was ever made, like we're told in the scriptures there, God looked forward that when he made this point of creation, and he knew from all eternity that these creatures would fail him and have to send his son to die to redeem this mankind, to prove his love for them, and maybe by that fact move us to a sinless life ourselves, there was one thing also that God really looked forward to, the creation of his own mother. You know, if we could do that ourselves, it would be amazing, but we can't. We don't do that. We don't choose our own mothers. God chooses them for us. But here God chose his own mother and gave her every special quality, every special prerogative, something to ask from beforehand, a prerogative means. Everything possible that could be given to your mother in every particular way, and the greatest of that, is that she was born without sin. So from that first moment, sanctifying grace is in her soul. From that first moment, she has such a treasure before God in every way that every, every time she says yes to God, every time she cooperates, the sanctifying grace just grows. This is why when we're reading the Gospel of today, when the angel comes before her and he says, Hail, full of grace. She is filled with grace and ever filling during her entire life on this earth. And it all started because never at any time did she have even original sin 
upon her soul. Never at any time. And so in that way, her will could not be affected in moving away from God. She had the true human will. Yes, she did. But the grace was so powerful that she could be stand stronger against any temptation, any work of the devil against her, simply because of this great favor that God had given to her. Besides that, on this day, we, we reflect upon the power that Mary has over the devil. Mary is this great and loving creation of God, unique creation of God in this way. But because she is sinless, she has great power over the devil himself. God has promised that in the Garden of Eden to about the devil. And daily, for Mary's true children who call upon her whenever there is a need, daily she exercises that power of the devil for them and helps them to crush him down in their life. But they must truly act as her children in every way, both by prayer and good works and everything of that nature. Such how important it is for us in this devotion to Mary and our lives. This thought of the Immaculate Conception took great um, uh, prominence before us, I guess, in the church and before souls in the middle of the 1800s. In 1854, August, December 8, 1854, Pope Pius IX defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Up until that time, there were theologians were talking about how this is possible, this and that, and one forth. It's just, it's, an, it's amazing to read of the various things of discussion, theological discussions that take place in this particular point. A majority of the church always believed that Mary was conceived without sin, but there were others who didn't, and for proper reasons, and I don't want to take the time to go into all those particular points right now, but it was a point there, a struggle and points of theology and thoughts of that nature to settle the matter once and for all. Pope Pius IX established this, he defined, as we use the term, infallibly tells us that Mary was conceived without sin. It makes it a dogma of our faith. This is something that we must believe, and in believing it, we gain the favor and graces that come as a result of all that. He says, like I said in, in before, that it's a result of a unique privilege of God, a unique work of God on Mary in this way. Looking ahead to, as we read in the introit and in other prayers for today's Mass, looking ahead to the Savior to come, and because she will be the mother of the Savior, God has granted her this great favor. A few years after the definition of the Immaculate Conception, Our Lady appeared at Lourdes in France to um, a little girl there, Bernadette. And when, when Bernadette had asked to identify her, because people were asking who this vision was, who was this lady that Bernadette was seeing, her response was, I am the Immaculate Conception. Four years after that great definition of our faith, Our Lady comes down and puts like a seal, if you will, upon what it is the Pope has done. Not that that's necessary. It's enough for the Pope to do it because he's guided by the Holy Ghost and the Church is infallible. So he didn't need to have a seal to have heaven's approval on what had been done. But if people needed it, as the devotion was growing stronger, after the definition of Magda Conception, these words at Lourdes would help them in every way. But 20 years, a little more than 20 years, before the Pope had given us this definition and defined for us, there was another great event, another apparition in which Our Lady used this as a central focus, her Immaculate Conception, and to build up a strong devotion to that. And that's what took place in the case of Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal, as we know her. In 1830, 
um, that was in the convent of the Visitation Convent in the city of Paris on the street of Rudebach. Um, there was a nun, Sister Catherine, Sister Catherine Labore, to give her a full thing. Um, by all means, a nun who lived her rule followed her way of life before God, but outside of that, no one that was any great mark or point of devotion, but God was about to choose her for a special work. As she was asleep one night, her guardian angel came and woke her up in the middle of the night and said to come to the chapel right away because the Blessed Virgin Mary was there and wanted to speak to her. Can you imagine being told that in the middle of the night? Having an angel wake you up and say, you have to come to the chapel right now? If it wasn't an angel saying this and she understood it to be from God, she had her rule of silence at night and being in bed at a certain time and all those particular things. She knew she wasn't being disobedient to this because God was calling her something higher, and she later on explained to her superiors all that had happened. So it showed her obedience and her spiritual obedience under this manner. But still, she walked into the chapel, and there seated on the chair that the priest usually would use during a high mass was the Blessed Virgin Mary. And St. Catherine Labore went up to her and kneeled before her. Our Lady spoke to her a few words, but as it applies to what I want to talk about today, after speaking to her for a little while, she turns to her and, and, and just says, look at this image. And before St. Catherine Labore appears this oval image, it shows Mary in the middle, her hands down, and rays coming from most of the fingers of jewels that are in her hands. And around it is, O Mary, conceive without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. And a lady tells St. Catherine Labore, have a medal struck up according to this image that you see. She says, all who wear it will receive great graces. They should wear it around their necks. And graces will abound for those who wear it in confidence. Okay, it's one thing to be woken up in the middle of the night by your guardian angel. How about this next point? To have someone you believe to be the mother of God, and now you've got to go for it. She's told you, a simple ordinary nun, if you will. She's told you now to be an apostle for this work of her Immaculate Conception that she wants spread through the entire world to have a medal made in her honor. Who is she? She's not the Pope. She's not a bishop. She's not even a parish priest. A simple nun. But God is calling her. She understands it. She goes before her superiors, before her confessor and all that. She has a bit of trouble and says, no, she's insistent upon it. Our Lady wants this done. Finally, it gets to the point with the bishop and the bishop approves it. And the medal is distributed in Paris at first. Two years, it took two years to get to that point, 1832. And it seemed to catch fire in Paris. Now understand, Paris at this time, like much of Europe, but mostly in Paris, the libertarians, the Freemasons, were strong. Doubts against religion were everywhere. And it was growing more and more. Revolts against the Pope revolts against the Church and the Church having authority over people and so forth. So for a medal to come forth from Paris, from a small convent tucked away in Rudebach, that from this medal, where this nun in this place had seen Mary, and Mary said she wants this and whoever wears it and prays and uses it with great confidence will receive great graces from God. It's a, the amazing part of it in the beginning is that it caught on so quickly. And again, maybe because it's in Paris and the Parisians just thought, this is our medal, this is our devotion, and they picked it up right away. 
And so many metals were struck and had to be remade and remade to fill the demand that went from Paris and all through France and eventually through all Europe and throughout the entire world. Within a year, I think maybe a year and a half, instead of calling it what had officially been known by as the Medal of the Immaculate Conception, people started calling it the Miraculous Medal because so many miracles were being worked. Miracles of health, of peace of heart and soul, of blessings of every nature that people asked for, of protection in time of trial, in time of health, whatever might be there. And even great conversions were taking place. There's one that particularly stands out, Venerable Joseph Lieberman, um, a Jewish man who was converted through the miraculous medal. He later goes on to do great work in the church and become a priest, too. I mean, just, it's an amazing thing. This medal is deemed to be miraculous, and it worked in that way. Now, understand, the medal by itself has no power. It's a piece of metal. Even if it has a nice image on it, no, that is still a piece of metal. Once that piece of metal is blessed, with a special blessing for the miraculous metal, now, it doesn't change it. It's still a piece of metal, but with a blessing. And this is where it comes in for you and for me, if we're going to pray and use the miraculous metal as Our Lady wanted us to do. She says, all who pray with confidence will receive great graces. The key word there is confidence. Not just mumbling prayers, but having confidence. Confidence that Our Lady gave us this sacramental for us to use. And then if we honor her and pray with confidence, just about anything we ask for will be granted because that is her promise. There's a, um, a painting, a holy card, some image. It's call it Our Lady of Grace. It's taking the image of Mary that's on the miraculous medal and separating it from making its own painting or image. And it helps you to be able to see because it's the same image of Mary. So Our Lady of Grace, Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal. But it's the same image, what Our Lady was trying to convey to St. Catherine Labore about those who receive graces if they pray with confidence. You see her with her hands down and coming to the earth. From that image, you see rays coming forth from jewels that are on her fingers. But not every jewel has rays coming from it, only a few. The rest... Like they're powerless. There's nothing coming forth. Our Lady told St. Catherine Labore, as part of this vision, look at this image here. She said, this tells you how many, how people receive the grace of God. If they pray with confidence, it is like those rays that are coming forth from the jewels. And they come upon people and shower upon people everything they need. But if they don't pray with confidence, it's like those jewels that have nothing coming forth. God wants to give great graces, but we don't gain them because we don't pray with confidence. This is what Our Lady said to St. Catherine Labrain. This is, I think, probably the main message of what we understand about what we call the miraculous medal. And it's a fitting recollection for us on this day, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, because it is the medal of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. It calls special attention to this special prerogative, this power that Mary has over the devil by being so highly favored and cooperating with God. This gives us a bit of understanding of how it is 
that Mary's favor before God is so great, so powerful, and God wishes to use it. And why the saints have said, nothing is refused to Mary. To those who ask things through her powerful intercession, as so great a mother, she will go to her son. And her son, like she said to Fatima, won't refuse me anything if you come to me with love and confidence. There we are, back to that word again. Confidence. That means that when you and I pray, we've got to pray with meaning. We have to pray with devotion. We have to pray, no matter what the intention we have, we have to pray like we mean it, and that God will listen to us. And not think that, oh, well, I'm such a sinner here, or oh, no, well, I think God's probably sleeping right now, and he doesn't want to listen to my prayer, or he's heard too much for me, and all the other stuff that goes there, to weaken the power of our prayers. It takes confidence, great confidence, to turn to Mary. Our God is so great, our Blessed Mother is so powerful before our great God, that if anything we ask for, sky's the limit. If it's good for our salvation, it will be given to us, if we have confidence. If we don't, no wonder. No wonder we're still having such troubles in our lives. No wonder so many different things go wrong. We don't get the favors. We want to blame God, blame ourselves. Our faith is weak. Our trust in God is weak. We don't pray with confidence as we should. Since Advent is a time for us to rebuild our interior life, let's rebuild it here. Our manner of prayer. How confident are we when we pray? This is the time on this feast day, knowing what we understand about the dogma of this faith, Mary's power before God and over the devil himself, that we can turn to her in prayer and she will turn to God for us. But we have to be confident. As simple as that little prayer is on the miraculous medal, will Mary conceive without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. Let's pray that prayer well. Don't just mumble the words. Don't have a miraculous medal on you or wearing it and let the power of it go to waste. Pray with confidence. Pray with love. Pray with devotion. Grace will abound to those who wear it with confidence. That's Our Lady's words. It has been proven to be true. It is going to always be proven to be true. If you and I honor our mother in this way. We've just begun Advent. I think we've come up to the second Sunday of it. Let's use this as another point of reflection. How we pray our prayers, how well we pray them, and do we pray them with confidence, as Our Lady asks, and throw in there too. If we wear the miraculous medal, is it just something around our neck that we forget about? And don't use it as that spiritual powerhouse that it is and has proven itself to be in every way, in every generation since it's been amongst us to those who pray and wear it with confidence. Be one of those confident people when you pray and you will see this great work of Mary with God for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. We hope you have enjoyed, but more importantly, found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit. For more information on the ministry of Father Kevin Valancourt, you may write to him at the following. Reverend Father Kevin Valancourt, 
That's V-A-I-L-L-A-N-C-O-U-R-T, 3914 North Lidgerwood Street. That's L-I-D-G-E-R-W-O-O-D, Spokane, Washington, 99207. We will be on air one week from this evening at the same time and will present another installment of From the Pulpit. We at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be of value to you and to your Catholic faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated to us, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at True Restoration, or via email at mail at truerestoration.org. Until next time, keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.